right, welcome back to the Trap House, the source of all funky things. So these last few months, Bitcoin's been in the headlines and things like the price of Bitcoin continues to set all time highs. Deutsche Bank said that in terms of total currency and circulation, Bitcoin's the third largest in the world after the US dollar and the euro. And then also companies like PayPal, MicroStrategy and Tesla are holding Bitcoin in their balance sheets or accepting Bitcoin for payment uh, for goods and services. But to be honest with you, the price of Bitcoin, while important, is the least interesting thing to me. Uh, the technology and what that technology represents as far as liberty, sovereignty, and the geopolitical ramifications, that's really where things start getting really interesting. So I've been in this world for uh, longer than I'd care to admit now, but I brought on someone who's much smarter than me to talk through Bitcoin and what it means to the world. And today, uh, this man is known as Econo Alchemist. And I'd like to well, welcome welcome to the show, my brain. What is up, Citizen Hush? <laughs> so we, we met at the Bear Arms and Bitcoin conference earlier this month, uh, where you gave a really good talk on Bitcoin, in particular what I was interested in, the KYC versus non-KYC piece and how to acquire non-KYC. But those are some questions I'll probably have for you later. But um, so uh, if, you, if you don't know who Econo Alchemist is, uh, he, he's, he's a big figure in the Bitcoin community, uh, community advocating for self-custody, censorship resistance, and privacy from government overreach. Um, and these are all things that are near and dear to my heart, and I know to a lot of folks listening's hearts. So uh, he's got a blog or website over at EconoAlchemist.com. Be sure to check it, check it out. It's got a lot of really super helpful tutorials on getting started into this world because uh, to a lot of people, they select out of getting involved in Bitcoin. And, uh, unfor and unfortunately, they allow themselves to be intimidated by like the um, foreseen startup cost and uh, tech technological details that it takes. And that's unfortunate. And Econo Alchemist does a lot to kind of show you behind the curtain what's going on. So uh, yeah, dude, really looking forward to uh, really looking forward to this. But uh, yeah, so think that you made it made it safely uh, back home after the conference. Yep. Yeah, yeah, flew back. No problems there. It was good to be back home. But uh, that was the most fun I've had in Texas. So, it, was a, it was a good trip. What, what what was what was your favorite part of the conference? You know, honestly, it was hanging out with some people that I had met online uh, in the Ronin Dojo and the Samurai Wallet developer communities. Um, so they invited me over to a place that they had um, after the conference, and we just chilled out and got to catch up and meet each other face to face. That was the first time a lot of us had a chance to meet each other. That was the first time I met any of them, but that was also the first time a lot of them were meeting each other for the first time in person. And so it was just really great to put a face to these like NIMS that you interact with online and actually get to meet the person behind the account and, and shoot the shit with them. It was just awesome. Yeah, dude, it, that seeing seeing like all of this culminate at this conference between like folks who come from the traditional gun world, the three D printed gun world, and then uh, the Bitcoin world. Like these are that was part of what my talk was about. Like they're naturally complementary to one another, and being able to see it get all pulled together uh, into one build that, that it was an incredible experience, and uh, hoping hoping to be a part of it next year too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there was. 
it was great being exposed to like the 3D printed gun stuff because I'm a gun advocate. I have firearms and I like to to shoot, you know, just target practice. I don't do any I, I'm not really into hunting, but I do love guns. I do love getting out in the open and shooting them. And uh never really thought about 3D printing guns. Um, but I had heard a lot about it through interacting with these guys online. And it was just really cool to see that whole community and get a chance to interact with those people. And then the following day, get to go out to the range and actually see some of them in action. It was just really eye-opening. Um, definitely makes me want to get a 3D printer and start doing some prints at home too. That's awesome, dude. Did, did, you, did you shoot any 3D printed guns? No, I didn't get a chance to shoot any 3D printed ones. But one of the guys I was hanging out with, he he had a, a 38 revolver that I got to shoot, so that was fun. There you go. Yeah, yeah it, it, and any day you get to shoot guns is a good day in my book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, let's let, let's uh get back to the Bitcoin thing though. So uh, get so a lot of the folks who are tuning in probably are aware of Bitcoin like from a headline perspective. So I, what I'm really interested in is hearing about like your story. Like what was the draw for you to get into Bitcoin? And like what, what, where where was your injection point into this world? Yeah, totally. Um, it, it wasn't all that long ago, actually. I didn't start getting into Bitcoin until December of 2018. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was the, for the same reasons I think a lot of people get into Bitcoin, which is, I wanted to make a little bit of money into a lot of money. And, you know, it was those big headlines that you see about the price movements and and the potential that, that really got me interested in it. So, you know, if we back up to 2018, uh, you know, my wife and I were living in a very small house. Uh, we had just spent a boatload of money renovating it with the intentions to sell it. Uh, Our family was growing. We had just had our second kid. And, um, you know, I, my daytime job, my day job that I still have to this day, uh, it just wasn't enough to cover everything that we needed. And, you know, I think a lot of people are in situations where they're spending 110% of their paycheck and they're just leveraging debt to help them get by paycheck to paycheck. And so I had a little bit of money set aside and I wanted to put it into something and try and make that grow. And I at first started trading stocks. I opened up some brokerage accounts, started doing day trading, got totally burned, uh, lost one third of my money and decided that that wasn't an option anymore. And then uh, family members started talking to me about Bitcoin. and. I decided to take my remaining money and invest it into Bitcoin as, you know, thinking of it more like a stock. And so that's how I, I got started with Bitcoin. And I think a lot of people do that. They get into it to try and make a lot more money. But the more I learned about Bitcoin and the more I started interacting with it, the more my eyes started to open. And, you know, some some people go through this and I definitely went through it too. Like for a couple of weeks, I stopped eating. I stopped sleeping. I just could not consume enough information about Bitcoin. I got totally sucked into it. 
And, you know, some of the reasons I was getting sucked into it is because I started to realize how Bitcoin isn't just a conduit to accumulate more fiat currency. I started to realize that Bitcoin solves some real world problems that I had, like my paycheck getting garnished or not being able to open a bank account. And when I started to realize the real implications behind these buzzwords that you hear, like censorship resistance, permissionless, neutral, decentralized, when I really started to understand what those words meant and what it meant in action, uh, then I, I really stopped caring about the price. And that's when I started heading down this rabbit hole about self-custody and censorship resistance and how do I get out of this fiat trap that I'm stuck in where I'm spending 110% of my paycheck, not because I'm not worthy, but because the system's broken. You know, and I I really tried playing by the rules. You know, my when I was growing up, and I think your experience is probably similar because I'm guessing our parents are around the same age, but my parents are from that baby boomer generation. And their advice to me growing up was always like, go to college, get an education, don't make the same mistakes we did. It doesn't matter what your degree is in, you're just going to be better off in life if you get a college education. And, you know, unfortunately, the world that we were born into doesn't exist anymore. And the sooner you can realize that and come to terms with the fact that those old rules don't work anymore and they don't work for an entire generation of people, the sooner you can realize that, the better off you're going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I accumulated a mountain of debt going to college and I never used my degree. Mm-hmm. And I, there's an entire generation of people like that who graduated around 2008 and 2009 and the few years after that, after the financial crisis, there was a whole generation of people where the world literally turned upside down on them. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you bring up like the education piece in tandem with the fiat. Uh, Like everyone talks about the cost of college and making college free or making anything free for that matter. And like no one asked the question, like, why is college uh, so expensive? And like when you look at the actual economic levers that are being pulled with like central banks, creating art through artificially low interest rates, create artificially high demand for a college degree. Well, of course it's going to go, uh, tuition's going to go up. And like the, the issue, the issue with a lot of these, uh, educational institutions too, is like when the incentive is to capture as much of this cheap money, uh, as possible, it, it's not really to increase the quality of the service they're providing. It's to create flashy gyms, uh, flashy buildings, things like that. And you see a lot of malinvestment in that front. And um, it, it, it just becomes this self, self-reinforcing um, echo chamber <laughs> where cheap, cheap money and is, uh, artificially low interest rates cause much more structural. And I think this is what you're alluding to systemically. Uh, they create a lot of uh, a lot of perverse incentives that 
end up hurting people where you end up with someone who has a useless degree um, or even even with a moderately useful degree uh, and they can't find a job um, and they've got 100K in student loans. Uh, so it, that, that's uh, it, that, 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 that's it. that was one of the interesting things for me when I first got into this world also. Um, because I, I came, uh, I came from, I came into Bitcoin from an economic standpoint, like coming from like the Austrian school at economics versus the technology exclusively. And the technology was more of an afterthought for me. To me, actually, like me being a broke ass grad student, it was, I was just like, yeah, this, 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 this is a way where I could put my political views where my mouth are. <laughs> But yeah, so let, let's talk a little bit more about that. So, like in in your view, what is money? Like we have money, but w- so why 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 does Bitcoin matter and fit, uh, fix that problem with uh, the current system of currency we have? So you know, like like any kind of money, Bitcoin's just an expression of value. But the fact that there's no central authority controlling that there's no way for it to be inflated out from the control of your bank account mm-hmm. um, it, it's a it's a completely different kind of money than we're used to and and this is where I, I really try to get people to like change their paradigm about what Bitcoin is like so many people get into this attracted to the number go up part of it. And they, they get into it because they think they're going to be able to later trade it for a boat full of more fiat currency. But that's not solving the problem. Like, yeah, dude, everybody's got the problem of needing more money. We could all use more money. But that that doesn't get to like the root of some of these issues where mm-hmm. if you've got a central bank that can just print as much money as they want and inflate the money supply that you're trading your time and labor for, then the purchasing power of the money that you're trying to save is constantly being eroded away from underneath you. And, you know, that, that brings up another point that I wanted to talk about was like a lot of people get weary of Bitcoin because it's, it's digital. Right. And they, they, they seem to have this disconnect between how much of their finances are already digitized. But when they think of Bitcoin, it's like, it's like a little too digital for them and they kind of get scared away from it or, or they're apprehensive about it, I should probably say. And, you know, the thing about your regular bank account is like, even if, if you've got cash in the bank, like that is getting hacked because of inflation, the purchasing power of the money that you traded your time and labor for isn't going to be there for you when you go to spend it. And it's just going to be worth less and less. So it's like, you know, the system is so rigged the way it's set up. Like they don't, they don't need to technically hack into your account and change the nominal amount of dollars you have in there. They can just fuck with the entire money supply and reduce the purchasing power that you've got. And for someone who's been working blue collar jobs their whole life, spending 110% of everything that they've earned, just getting into more and more debt, never able to save up, never able to get ahead. Bitcoin fixes some of those problems. And 
you know, the, the way it does it is there's, there's a hard cap on the number of Bitcoins that are ever going to be in circulation. And that number cannot be increased. So when you acquire Bitcoin, it's, it's similar to the way you would be acquiring property where they, they can't like put more property around your property. There, there's only so much of it to go around. And if you own this much of it, like that's yours. And if the property values go up, then that's great. Your property value goes up as well. But so that, you know, your, your purchasing power with Bitcoin isn't going to get inflated out from underneath you. And, and as someone with an economics background, you could probably explain the mechanics of why a scarce asset like Bitcoin over a long period of time is going to fare a lot better for storing value than paper money that can just be printed at will. Yeah, I think uh, I forget who did the study, but like uh, on a long enough time horizon, all, all fiat currencies uh, <laughs> um, depreciate to zero. Uh, and I, I, the US dollar is no different from that. And that's actually one thing that I think is in the last year that has changed. I've seen way fewer boomers referring to Bitcoin as magical internet money um, because I'm like, well, the, the Fed just pumped $3 trillion. What do, what do you think that is? <laughs> that, that's just, it's just the uh, magical meat space money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, 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 and the other thing is people like people talk about inflation and like don't recognize that inflation is fundamentally a tax on the poor. When when the Fed and the central bank uh, inject uh, inject print open market operations, whatever you want to call it, um, when when they inject this new currency into the monetary base, um, like who who are the first people to get it? Their buddies at Goldman Sachs, <laughs> and when you and the money hasn't percolated throughout the rest of the broader economy, and when that money is injected at the top, that money still has its purchasing power today. By the time that money percolates down to uh, working class people, um, the the purchasing power has been debased, and that that's why uh, it, that's why it's a tax on the poor, and why it's such a nefarious uh, construct of within the central bank's tool uh, toolbox. Yeah, it's it, and yeah. To your point, what was it? Twenty twenty one million Bitcoin will ever be produced. Uh, I think it's a little over eighteen million at this point, right? Um, in circulation, and like we we have provable provable scarcity uh, within a system, and we don't need to trust some bureaucrat. And the fact that we trust bureaucrats with the most, arguably the most important metric in an economy, the interest rate, that's just laughable. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so... Uh, let's let's talk about like the mechanics of Bitcoin. Uh, I, the the technical side, I think, is another area where a lot of folks who are new to this space tend to select themselves out. So, like, um, how do how does Bitcoin work mechanically? So, you know the the way it works is that you any individual can acquire some Bitcoin. And when they do this, they put it in a wallet. This can be an application on your phone. This can be an application on your desktop. Um, 
this this is where the cryptographic functions come into play. And cryptographically, your wallet application is going to be able to secure your Bitcoin. And it, it has certain information in it that is required for that Bitcoin to be spendable. So when you want to send some Bitcoin from your wallet, you create a transaction and your wallet will cryptographically sign that transaction and then it'll broadcast it out to this network. And this network is able to look at your transaction and determine if it's valid and if it meets the consensus rules of the network. So, for example, some things that would violate the consensus rules is if you were trying to spend some Bitcoin that had already been previously spent. It's called That's double. called the, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the network is, it's made up of these little computers. A lot of people run them on like Raspberry Pi, single board computers, and they're, they're called Bitcoin nodes. Anybody can buy a $65 Raspberry Pi and an external hard drive, and they can download the entire Bitcoin blockchain, which is a, a immutable ledger of all the transactions that have ever happened on the Bitcoin network. And every node is going to compare every transaction that it's passing to the, its own copy of the blockchain. And it's going to confirm that that transaction is, in fact, meeting the consensus rules of Bitcoin. This is part of where that saying, don't trust verify, comes from. Because if you're operating a node and, I'm, and, and I send a transaction out to the network and it crosses your node, your node's going to say, okay, hold on, let me look at this. It looks like this guy wants to spend some Bitcoin and it's, it's going to cross verify that everything matches up and that that's a valid transaction. And if, it, if it's an invalid transaction, it'll stop talking to me. So if your node passes a bad transaction, the other nodes around it will stop talking to it for like 24 hours. And so that's kind of how like uh, nefarious players can get blocked from interacting with the network. So you send a transaction from your wallet. It gets passed by these nodes through the rest of the network and propagates through the network and eventually gets picked up by the miners. And the miners are going to take a bunch of transactions and put them in a list. It's called a block. They're going to stack all these transactions up. And then they're going to try and compute a number that's unique to this block. And if the miner can successfully compute this number, it's really easy to verify but it's really difficult to come up with the number. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's why these, these mining machines are these super powerful computers that are running trillions of calculations a second to try and come up with this number. It's, you, and that's why it's called a proof of work system. You have to put in a lot of work 
to come up with this number. And once they come up with it, anyone can look at that and, and instantly verify that that is in fact the correct number. So once that block gets mined, then all the transactions inside of that block now get added to the blockchain with the rest of the blocks. And then that transaction is now part of an, an immutable ledger that can't be changed. And the Bitcoin that I sent is now cryptographically in someone else's control. And that can't be undone unless the person who has the cryptographic keys wants to spend that Bitcoin. Great, great. So you do a really good job of breaking this down. Like I know your, your talk that I went to at the conference also was like dispelling this rumor about the difficulty of getting setting up your own mining operation um and you 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 went you you went through some examples you had some really cool pictures um i i can i know they're on your blog i can screenshot them and overlay them here but uh like talk talk me through like what what made you want to become a miner really it, it was curiosity I, I i had always been interested in mining but i never under, really understood it. It was always kind of this like mysterious black box function in, in the Bitcoin network. And the, the little bit I did understand about mining stemmed from these fear, uncertainty and doubt narratives that were floating around the space, which were, don't try to mine at home. Your residential electricity is too expensive. You're only going to lose money. You would be better off taking the money you spent on your electric bill and just buying Bitcoin directly with it. Um, you can't compete with the large companies who have these massive mining operations set up next to a hydroelectric plant. So don't even try, uh, you, you know, and all these, all these ridiculous narratives that, that just weren't true. So, and, you know, hearing them and not really knowing anything about it, I just kind of assumed like, wow. Yeah. You know, I, I wish I could have gotten to mining early on and it's just too late, but whatever. And then this dude on, you can find him on Twitter. His handle is at diverter underscore no KYC. He wrote this, this guide called mining for the streets. And I found this guide like back in October. I think I, I started reading it back in October last year. And he very eloquently like and logically destroyed all of those narratives and showed how he was mining at home he showed how if you look at it from the viewpoint of not running a business but trying to dollar cost average through your electricity bill to accumulate non-kyc bitcoin if you looked at it from that angle it would make way more sense to do it and and so that that's when I decided, like, there might be something to this. I'm I'm going to give it a shot. And and Bitcoin had just jumped up from like eleven grand to like eighteen grand, and I knew it was going to go above twenty, and then all hell was going to break loose. So if I was going to do something, I, I had better. I I just sensed that there was like a a window of opportunity there, um, and so I took a little bit of money. And I bought an ASIC, which is a you know one of the mining machines, 
It's an application-specific integrated circuit. And, you know, this particular machine that I bought will do 80 trillion calculations a second. And it's just, con it's just constantly trying to, to find that magic number for that block. And um, this machine, this computer, I, I call it a machine. It's really just a really powerful computer. Um, it's designed for industrial applications where it's got plenty of ventilation, uh, where temperatures aren't really an issue, uh, where sound isn't an issue. Um, so I took this like, super powerful industrial machine and installed it directly under my kid's bedroom in my basement. And uh, I had to come up with some clever solutions to make this work. Uh, <laughs> so I remember you walking us through that in your talk. That was awesome, man. <laughs> yeah. So what were, what were some of the things that you had to solve for uh, running, running this ASIC down in your basement? So, you know, one of them was the ventilation. I had to get cool air to it and exhaust the hot air. Um, you know, I've, I've just got it in like a standard size bedroom. And, and after running for about an hour, it raised the temperature in that room to about 80 degrees. Mm -hmm. at, at the output fan, this, this thing is doing like 150 degrees Fahrenheit. So I, I took the window out of the room and, and, put two holes in it, one for intake air and one for exhaust air. And then to mitigate the noise, I built an enclosure out of MDF and plywood and put the machine inside of this enclosure and then did six inch ductwork to bring the fresh air to it. And then six inch ductwork to bring the, the exhaust air out of it. Um, and it, it got the noise levels under control. You, you can't even hear it when you're up in my kid's room. Uh, it, it, and it supplies adequate air to keep the machine cool from overheating. Um, and then, you know, another narrative was that it was really complicated to set up a mining machine. And it, dude, it, it's really not. I don't have a computer science background. I don't know shit about like networking technicalities. Um, it was super easy. You literally just plug it in and tell it which pool you want to mine on and, and a couple of clicks and you're up and running. Um, that, that's awesome, dude. Like, um, that, that, that's, that's something I love so much about the Bitcoin community too, because like coming from the traditional gun world where like gun ownership is taking your own safety and deterrence against tyranny into your own hands. Bitcoin is really the financial extension of this. It's opting out of a centralized system that has all sorts of distorted incentives with negative outcomes. And you're, you are literally, you and uh, millions of other people around the world are literally opting out of that system and building something new. Uh, that that's an incredibly powerful idea that we're, we're, th there's this financial revolution happening beneath the headlines that people like people think it's just like, Oh, doge, <laughs> but it's so much more than that. Yeah. Dude, the, the financial system has been weaponized against you. It's, and, and for generations, it's been weaponized against us. And it's like, yeah, of course you're going to have a gun in your home 
to protect you and your family against the invasion of uh, some kind of perpetrator that's trying to do you harm. When it comes to finances, it's a lot more subtle and, and you don't really realize it, but it's more like you're, you're, uh, it's death by a, a thousand paper cuts. Yeah. And dude, no, Bitcoin is a weapon and it is your defense mechanism to fight back against a system that has been weaponized against you, that has turned you into the product. And yeah, it's, it's how people can achieve sovereignty. Um, you know, so like mining it at home is one way to get Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, and when there's a lot of other ways to get it, but some of those ways will require you to cough up your personally identifiable information. Yeah, that you, you, you mentioned an acronym here, KYC. Uh, could, could you explain uh, that to the folks who are tuning in? Like what's yeah. KYC versus non-KYC? One's, why is one preferable to the other and uh, all that good stuff? So KYC stands for Know Your Customer. It's, it's part of a, a body of regulation that is managed by FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network which is a department of the U.S. Treasury. They, um, using the Bank Secrecy Act, they, they started rolling out these regulations for banks to know their customers and regulations around anti-money laundering. And, and these regulations are invasive scare tactics that have morphed into this panoptic surveillance state where they're attaching your identity to your financial actions and they're tracking everything you're doing and they're 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 monitoring it to make sure you're using your own money the way they approve mm-hmm. um you know i i was just talking to somebody on twitter the other day and they said that they've never had a problem like depositing large sums of cash at a bank. That's great. You know, the system does work for some people. Maybe some of your viewers don't have that problem, but like, look at me, dude. I walk into a fucking bank with $12,000. Yeah. I've been asked a lot of fucking questions by those bank tellers. Like, where did this money come from? What are you, what are your intentions? How long was it sitting in that account before you brought it over here? Why is it in cash? Same thing when I go to withdraw cash. And even like when I've gone to a bank to do fucking wires, sorry, is it okay if I cuss on your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Even when I've done a fucking wire, they want to know like, well, what is this company you're wiring the money to? What are you getting from them? Why are you doing this? And it's like, I get the third degree. Mm-hmm. And of course, it, it's probably because I look like Bin Laden and they're trying to like, to do whatever they want to do. And, I, you know, I'm, it's great. Some people don't have those problems, but, you know, some of us do. And the nice thing about Bitcoin is I don't have to ask anyone for permission to spend my own fucking money. Yeah. Like the current system set up where you're committing financial fraud until proven otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with you, man. Uh, it's so, so like, go, sorry, go ahead. 
so so sorry that was kind of a tangent but so yeah the, you have to give up all this personally identifiable information about you so that they can monitor what you're doing and they can build a profile on you and they can share it with other banks and they can they can file uh, suspicious activity reports without you even knowing about it, which goes straight to the federal government, which then gets, you know, handed out to whatever agencies that they feel is appropriate to investigate the matter, which then gets rolled out to whatever contractors the government agencies are using to supplement their operations. And little by little, your information is just winding up in all these honeypots and on all these servers all over the place. And to get Bitcoin, they take all those KYC AML regulations from the legacy financial system and they like crank it up to 11 and they try to get you to give up your, your name, your, ad, your physical address, your date of birth, social security number, financial statements. Most of them will actually make you take a selfie holding your ID in front of your house with the address visible and holding a sign that says like Binance April 20th 2021 like I'm I'm glad you used Binance as the example there cuz I remember I remember going through that and I just noped out of the entire thing this was years ago <laughs> I was like nope sorry guys yeah it's it's absolutely insane and so so that that's that's the KYC, but there, there's, and so with Bitcoin, like I was saying, you, you've got all these little nodes all over the place running on all these little Raspberry Pi computers, verifying transactions against their own copy of the blockchain. That's because it's a decentralized network and it's a public network. So when you attach your personally identifiable information to your Bitcoin address, the movements of your Bitcoin funds and the interactions connected to your Bitcoin address are all out there in the wide open for anybody to look at. You don't even need to be a node operator. Like anybody can log online and pull up a block explorer and put in a Bitcoin address and see all the transactions into it, all the transactions out of it, where those transactions went and how they're connected downstream. So if the exchange gets hacked and that personally identifiable information that was sitting in their honeypot gets leaked to the dark net, then your information is potentially connected with your Bitcoin holdings and any number of criminals or nefarious players out there could know all that information about you, your name, your address, your date of birth, your selfie, they know what you look like, they know where you live, and they know how much Bitcoin you have. Mm -hmm. And before anyone in the comments starts going off on like the paranoia about this, like it's it's already happening, right? Where folks are being held ransom for their Bitcoin holdings, right? Right. There, there was just a headline. I think it was in like, I want to say it was in Ontario or Quebec or maybe Montreal. I think it was in... They're all the same. (laughs) Like somebody broke into the dude's house um, and stole their their uh, Bitcoin or their their 
I'm not sure if it was Bitcoin, but they stole some sort of cryptocurrency keys or information from them. Um, and they were, it's, it's, it's looking like that person was likely targeted because the hardware wallet manufacturer Ledger had a massive data breach recently that leaked something to the tune of 2 million customers' orders and addresses and personal information. Um, and, and so, you know, as the demand for Bitcoin continues to increase, the value of the information on individuals related to Bitcoin is also going to increase. And criminals are going to go to greater and greater lengths to try and access that information. So, you know, the the exchange has your information. They share it with the, with the government. Now it's on a government server somewhere. The government shares it with whatever agencies they need to. Now it's on multiple government servers. Government IT infrastructure is notoriously brittle. Then they share it with whatever contractors they're working with. So now it's on, you know, you've got at least like three instances of your information floating around. It's just a matter of time before hackers get in there, steal that information and turn around and sell it because it's now worth so much to criminals who are interested in doing ransoms and kidnappings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it makes it such an easy target. Yeah. And, and, and so when we're talking about KYC exchanges, like we're talking about Coinbase, we're talking about Bittrex, we're talking about KuCoin, all these guys. And so that Coinbase is the probably the most popular fiat on-ramp in the U.S. at least. So uh, let, let's, say, um, let, let's say someone's listening to this and they've been using Coinbase. So like, and now, th- now they're concerned about the privacy constraints of having their uh, personal information tied to their crypto holdings. What 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 does someone do? So do they? Is there a way to cle- quote unquote cleanse uh, their holdings of that KYC smear? Um, what what are their options? So you know, this is where I want to make a a, a distinction. Uh, you know, I, I want to make this point very clear. KYC events. When when you and what I mean by that is like when you go on to Coinbase and you give them your KYC information and you buy Bitcoin, that event, that KYC event is forever. There's no way to erase that event. Coinbase is always going to have that information. They're always going to know that on April 20th, 2021, Citizen Hush bought a Bitcoin and they're always going to have record of that. And, and they're always going to have record of the address that it was deposited to. You can't undo that. And you, you can't stop Coinbase from sharing that with whoever they're going to share it with. They've already made it publicly known that they actively work with law enforcement agencies all around the globe. So I, I just want to be clear here that once you KYC that KYC event cannot be undone. There's nothing you can do to undo that. However, there are measures that you can take and uh, I highly recommend taking them to defensively guard your privacy and to help you gain some forward-looking anonymity. So first and foremost, get your coins off the exchange. This is called self-custody, and I'm, I'm a very vocal advocate for self-custody. When 
Coinbase is holding your Bitcoin. You're just left holding an IOU. There's no FDIC, no S, uh, SIPC insurance. Um, there's nothing to cover you in the event that Coinbase gets hacked and all of their Bitcoins mysteriously disappear. Or uh, like we saw with Quadriga CX, the CEO of the exchange goes on honeymoon to Mumbai and mysteriously dies and was the only person with the private keys to unlock all the cryptocurrency funds on their exchange. There's nothing to like help the end user out in these catastrophic situations. So when you trust a third party with your Bitcoin, there's really nothing you can do. You are at the mercy of that third party's permission. You're at the mercy of their security measures. You're at the mercy of everything. Like, let me just kind of frame this for the gun advocate viewers. Like, would you trust a third party to hold your guns for you in the event that an intruder was breaking into your house? No, you're you're gonna hold your own fucking guns, yeah. and it, we already have a third party. It's called the police. Like, you're not, <laughs> not so good. <laughs> like you, the whole reason you have guns in your home is because you don't trust that the police are gonna get there fast enough, right? Mm -hmm. Like you want to be able to react and respond and do what you need to do to protect yourself. And it's kind of the same when you're trusting a third party with your Bitcoin. Like you're at the mercy of them responding quick enough to protect you. And I guarantee they're going to put their own interests before your own interests. You are the product when you're dealing with the third party. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, get your funds off of Coinbase. You know, and, and I wrote a, a five-part series that was kind of tailored to people who had never installed a wallet before. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's kind of geared for um, a new person who wants to put a Bitcoin wallet on their iPhone or on their Android phone or on their desktop. And, and then the last part of the series talks about like how to buy non KYC Bitcoin. Yeah. So, I'll, I'll, I'll link to that. If you, if you, sh I've, I've read that uh, series. If you could link it to me on Twitter, uh, I'll, I'll overlay that uh, on this section too. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, when when you brought up the gun analogy, actually, just the KYC, this notion of KYC. So for gun owners, a national gun registry would be the equivalent to that, of right. uh, where we're effectively being again proven guilty of committing a violent crime before we've before a crime's been committed, and the and we're we're, we're guilty till proven innocent. And uh, serialized firearms and, and inevitably an, a gun registry, that's probably the uh, 2A version of KYC versus non-KYC. Like, um, and it, it's, it's, an, it's an important topic. And it, it's one that I admittedly didn't dive too deep into until actually I met you, to be quite honest. And um, yeah, it's 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 fascinating, um, and I, I I'd love to. So you you've talked about privacy and self custody, like how how are how could these be used as um, 
I don't want to weapon is too loaded of a term, but how can they, how can privacy and self-custody be used as a deterrence to tyranny? Yeah. So like if you get your coins off an exchange and you've got them under self-custody, suddenly you have an expression of value that you don't need to ask anyone permission to use. You can use it however you want. As long as you're not trying to do something crazy like double spend some Bitcoin and do something that breaks the consensus rules, like the network is going to accept your transaction. And there's no intermediary party that can stop that transaction from happening. So that that's that's kind of powerful if you start to really unpack that. Like like I've got something that 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 has value that I can use for whatever I need food supplies weapons whatever and suddenly I can I can take this this value and I can make it appear on the other side of the planet instantaneously and no one can stop it from happening no one can make me jump through any kind of permissioned hoops to make that happen. I can do it with my own free will and I can, I can transfer that value anywhere in the globe instantaneously and it can't be stopped. And, and so if you get your coins off the exchange and you've got them in self custody, then you have given yourself the opportunity to interact with this Bitcoin network free from permission. And now to the identity piece of this, there's measures you can take to, to, to help you gain forward looking anonymity so that the damage done by the KYC event only haunts you so far into your, Bitcoin trail, because remember, this is every transaction on the Bitcoin ledger is public and traceable. So uh, Samurai Wallet has this thing called Whirlpool. And Whirlpool is a coin join implementation where what, what's coin join? So so coin join is where you build a, a Bitcoin transaction with several inputs and several outputs. And the way that this, that the way that Whirlpool does it is there's five inputs and there's five outputs. And all the outputs are the exact same size. So there's nothing about any one of those five outputs that makes it any more likely connected to any one of the five inputs than any of the others. So, like, um, let's say you 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 put your coins into Whirlpool and you mix them. Suddenly there there's there's five new Bitcoin outputs, and when I say output, that's like um, like a Bitcoin address you would have in your wallet. Mm -hmm. So there there's five of them, and they all look exactly alike, and none of them have any distinguishing features that would give anyone any 
more uh, reason to assume that it came from the original input that was tied to your identity. So if, you, if you've got this Bitcoin input that you've taken into self-custody off of Coinbase, Coinbase saw you do that transaction and they know your name and they know that the, the new Bitcoin address you have it in belongs to you. But then you take your known Bitcoin address and you put it into this coin join. And four other people also put inputs into this coin join. And Coinbase may or may not know who those other people are. At most, the way that CoinJoin uh, implementation is built in Whirlpool, at most, um, three inputs could be tied to identities. But minimum in each transaction in Whirlpool, minimum two of the inputs are going to be inputs that came from already mixed outputs mm -hmm. so like there's no like traceable history to those either i mean it's effectively encrypting a transaction history right well it's it's um it's it's not necessarily obfuscating it's more like it's more like blending into a crowd mm -hmm. and so yeah. the, the more of these five input five output transactions that you can get your bitcoin to go through the more you just blend into this crowd and the harder it is to trace you. So like, let's say I put one input in and Coinbase knows it was me that went in. Well, now they have five options to choose from going out. And there's nothing about any one of the five that makes it look any more like mine than any of the others. And then let's say those five go into five more transactions. Well, now you've got 25 more outputs that all look exactly the same and that number just keeps growing and just keeps growing the more all of, all of these transactions are made and so eventually you just wind up blending into this cloud of transactions that it, it, it it's not traceable back to your original input that was tied to your identity mm -hmm. And that, that's called breaking the deterministic links. So there's nothing that'll deterministically link any of those outputs back to your original input. Unless you do something crazy like, like take your mixed output and combine it back with some of your original change, you know, the, the user could undo some of the privacy benefits gained in Whirlpool mm -hmm. uh, themselves. But by design, you gain a tremendous amount of anonymity. And it's forward-looking so that anytime you go to spend it now, when someone looks back in your history, they wind up at a dead end where this coin joint transaction happened. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Obfus obfuscating transaction history. It's, uh, yeah, because you, you start hearing about like forensic accounting being applied to right. uh, Bitcoin transactions. And uh, I mean, if, if, if you're starting with a KYC transaction, then you can you can unfurl uh, uh, or theoretically you could unfurl a network of folks and 
effectively that metadata creates a footprint of you. Um, you see that happening in the advertising industry also with like your cookie, your cookie is uh, linked to your browser session. Um, okay. Interesting. And so let, let's say, let's say it's somebody, um, somebody's listening here who's, who has a sizable relative to their net worth holding of KYC tokens. What, what's the best way? And all of a sudden they're, they're interested in get, getting rid of them. And they want non-KYC. Uh, aside from Whirlpool, um, what, what would uh, what would be your recommendation to uh, kind of cl- cleanse their wallet, if so to speak? So, you know, there there's a few different approaches, and and I, I've been faced with this exact problem because when I first started, I didn't know that KYC was a bad thing, and I gave everybody my information and bought some Bitcoin and then figured out um, the corner that I had backed myself into and had to come up with some creative solutions. So really the best thing you can do is provably sell that Bitcoin back to the exchange that you bought it on. And now when you do this, you have undeniable proof just like you had undeniable proof that you bought the Bitcoin, now you have undeniable proof that you no longer own the Bitcoin. And then you take the cash from the exchange and you use that cash to go buy Bitcoin through a non-KYC method, such as from family and friends, from a Bitcoin ATM, from uh, mining it like I did, or from a peer-to-peer exchange like BISC. And, um, you know, BISC is a, is a pretty powerful tool where buyers and sellers um, can find each other and they agree to do a transaction to sell Bitcoin for fiat currency. They both put up a little bit of Bitcoin as a security deposit. And then they make the fiat transaction to each other out of band, meaning not within the BISC application. This is usually done through um, bank applications like Zelle, Zelle, Revolut, Uphold. And so what's neat about this is that like, if you use Uphold, for example, your bank is just going to see you sending a transaction to another Uphold user. They're not going to have any idea that on the back end of this transaction, that user was giving you Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So there's no way for the bank to know that the transactions being sent back and forth to Uphold users or to Revolut users are for Bitcoin. And then once the buyer and seller both confirm back to BISC that everything went as planned, then BISC releases the security deposit back to both parties. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you do expose a little bit of your personal information to the one single peer that you're doing the fiat transaction with. But that's much different than giving all your information plus your selfie holding an ID to a corporation that's actively working with every three letter agency around the globe. Um, 
What about uh, so local Bitcoin? Uh, are you, is that an option that you'd recommend, or would you recommend BISC out of any other P two P non KYC? Based on my personal experience, I prefer BISC. Um, but I say that having not tried local Bitcoin. So, um, you know, I have um, provided that information to some people um, who are looking for alternatives to BISC. I pointed them to places like um, local Bitcoins. There's actually a website called uh, no, no, no KYC.me, I think. Um, I, I can send you the actual URL later, but that there's like this website that lists out like a bunch of different non KYC and very low KYC on ramps. And so people can look at that and kind of pick and choose and try different things and see what's, what works for them, what some of the trade-offs are. Um, you know, for me, I really like BISC. I think it's great. Um, it's, it's open source, it's decentralized. Um, the instance of BISC you're running on your computer is, it, it, it's not like you're logging on to some server in a corporate skyscraper somewhere, giving all your personal information. It's, it's running on your computer. So um, yeah, I, I think BISC is really good. And what about you can save oh, a lot of fees because Bitcoin ATMs are, are usually like aggravatingly expensive. Um, yeah, it's like a seven percent, ten percent premium over the spot price of Bitcoin. I right. Think. Yeah. Is is that a general rule of non KYC Bitcoin? Does uh, does non KYC Bitcoin generally just always come at a premium over spot? You know, there there is that perception. Um, However, I don't, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that based on my experience. So with BISC, for example, you, can, you don't have to take the offers that are out there. You can set your own offer and wait for sellers to come to you. Mm-hmm. And by doing it that way, I, you can actually um, place a lot of offers below market price and people will come to you and take them. As long as your instant BISC on your computer is up and running, People will see it when they initiate their instance of BISC and look for buyers. Um, so yeah, I've I've made a lot of purchases on BISC below market price. Um, I've never paid more than five percent uh, above market price on BISC, and that was only because I was in a rush. Um, and five percent, five percent is usually the commission a KYC exchange will take anyway, right? Or is it right. one percent? Yeah. And and so there's there's some disregarded premiums that people don't usually think about when they go through these KYC on ramps. Um, so there's going to be like a trading fee. Usually there's some like spread. So they're you're not really getting the real price. You're you're already paying five percent fee on top of a price that's already above the actual spot. Um, and then if you want to sell it, you're going to pay like 25% capital gains tax. So like when you get a KYC Bitcoin, it's only worth 75% face value at best. Yeah. I, I didn't even think about the, uh, the long-term short-term capital gains tax as an additional friction point on a KYC. Right. And, and, you know, and that's a, that's another thing about giving all your information to these KYC on ramps is like the 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 hackers are one threat. 
The other threat is your own government, because if they want to go after unrealized capital gains taxes, then then they have all your information. And they know who to talk to. And the the exchange is going to very happily work with them to do that. Um, Or if they wanted to enforce a 6102 style executive order, like in the 30s when they started confiscating gold, that's a lot easier to do and they can identify everybody. Yeah. So, you know, kind of back to your question about like, how can you protect your, use these tools to protect yourself against tyranny? Like get your coins off an exchange, whirlpool them to get that forward looking anonymity that doesn't undo the KYC event, but at least it breaks the deterministic links to it. Mm-hmm. And then you can use your Bitcoin in a way that, is more private. Um, now, if if you have Bitcoin in self custody already, I suggest coin joining it because if it's still linked to that um, KYC event, then in the event that anything crazy happens, like a sixty one hundred two style executive order, they're going to know who to talk to. But if you break those deterministic links now you're in a much better position. You've got a head start um, to try and protect yourself against that type of tyranny. In 6102, uh, that's the executive order FDR put through to confiscate gold uh, beyond a certain threshold, right? So that, that that's actually another question. That's actually another question, because after after reading your blog, I remember talking to a couple of my buddies about KYC versus non-KYC, and like the common response that they had, and like, most most of us have some sort of hardware wallet or um, a paper wallet on a Raspberry Pi or something like that of that nature. And like the common response I've gotten from folks is, "Well, I mean, I sent it over to a wallet. The Fed, the Feds don't even know that the same the the recipient was me." And you brought up a really good point that being able to sell onto the exchange is verifiable proof that you no longer hold those tokens. Whereas like. Uh, if if you just send if you just send uh, your holdings to another wallet address, there's no way that you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt uh, that uh, that's not you on the other end of the transaction. And exactly, yeah, and, and so like that that kind of gives you that um, that additional insurance there. And yeah, that's that, that's yeah. interesting. You know, and that's kind of similar to another like meme response where people will say, Oh, I'll just say I was in a boating accident and I lost my private key. And dude, that's total bullshit because like, okay, maybe the government can't technically prove that you still have access to it. But in that scenario, you cannot technically prove that you don't have access to it. So how much is proof of access really going to be an issue in that situation? I don't, I don't think it would be an issue. And they know exactly which address to watch because it's a public ledger. So in the event that that Bitcoin ever moves, you're the first person they're going to come talk to about it. Yep. And go go look in the garage and see if there are any new Lambos in there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's interesting, too, because like uh, that, that kind of goes back to like the system where the, the cards are stacked against you to begin with. Like you're if if you opt into on ramping in a system where 
you're, you're basically you're playing a, a variation of the same game, basically, where your identity is still tied to your transaction history. Like even if you try and lose things on a fucking boating accident, which is the most boomer thing I've ever heard. I'm, we have that in the firearms world, and I hate that. Fuck you. I didn't lose shit. Um, <laughs> uh, and like if if you if you have those ties still like it's a if we're already assuming that there's a registry, which there is, uh, we have the IRS, the SEC working in ten with these KYC exchanges. Like, why why not just take an extra step to take break those deterministic links? Um, it, it's not it, it's not that far fetched of a leap to think that there would be another executive order of that stance. I mean, we we wrecked uh, we wrecked a rock over <laughs> currency. <laughs> Like the, right. you, when you when you start doubting and threatening the U.S. government's monopoly on the global reserve currency status, uh, people die or have the tendency to die. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, dude. And and that that's something I bring up in a couple of my articles. Is like if a nation senses that its sovereignty is threatened, it will stop at nothing to isolate that threat. Mm-hmm. However, you know. And what I'm saying here is that Bitcoin is that threat. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing any government, corporation, entity can do to stop Bitcoin. It is unstoppable. So what do they do instead? They cozy up to it and they get they get Venmo to tell people that they're buying the idea of Bitcoin. Yeah, they're, they're selling people on the ideas and the principles of Bitcoin, but they're, that's not actually what they're delivering. They're delivering an IOU, you know. So you got Venmo doing it now, PayPal's done it, um, you know, and a lot of these exchanges are doing it too, where people are like, "Ah, oh, yeah, I've invested in Bitcoin, um, but I can't take it off." <laughs> right, exactly, and that's that's how they they've like neutered Bitcoin, and convince people that they're they're bitcoiners now even though they can't send the actual bitcoin to whoever they want whenever they want however they want so yeah it's when whenever i saw paypal getting involved with this i was just like oh this is this is uh instead of kyc bitcoin it's qvc bitcoin it's the watered down version late night commercial version exactly (laughs) oh man okay great so let's say uh we've got someone listening here and like they're 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 on board they're on board now that they're still scared they still don't trust themselves with the responsibility and this is this is a theme that i talk about a lot is like we pay lip service to freedom, but we never talk about the responsibility that comes with liberty. And go, going into this world, just like in the firearms world, if you take, if you, if you uh, actualize and exercise your freedom to arm yourself, that also comes with the responsibility. Uh, and it's it's the same counterpart in the financial sense with Bitcoin. So let's say someone is mortified and they don't come they don't trust themselves at all with protecting their wallet with uh not losing not becoming another headline where a guy lost uh the equivalent of a quarter million dollars of bitcoin uh on an old laptop what's the best way to um remove the human weakest link from this system so start with small amounts 
until you get more comfortable with these concepts. You know, don't try, you know, if you've already got a bunch of KYC Bitcoins, like don't try and sell it all in one lump sum and, and, and take all that cash and try and force it through BISC to get non KYC Bitcoin. Like, dude, take things slow, take them easy and take, take really small steps until these concepts start clicking and it starts making more sense. Like same thing in the gun community. I'm sure like if you've got someone who's never shot a gun before and you've got a, a 22 and a 50 cal, which one are you going to start them off with? <laughs> yeah, the 22. Okay, so like, it's kind of the same thing with Bitcoin. Just take really small steps and start easy. So to like remove the human error, it is radical responsibility. And, you know, and I, I think this rat, this level of radical responsibility is closely aligned with gun ownership. Like, especially if you've got kids in your house, mm-hmm. like what precautions are you taking to take the human error out of having a, a loaded gun in your house when there's children around? Absolutely. So, you know, you, you kind of got to, be thinking on that level. And I I think your audience is already primed for this level of thinking. Like there are precautions you can take. And and the first thing you got to do is your Bitcoin wallet, whether that's on your mobile device or your desktop, it's going to provide you with a list of words. And these words are a human readable format for a extremely long and complex number that's unique to your wallet. That's called your private key, your private cryptographic key. And what your wallet software is going to do, it's going to take this really long, complicated number, and it's going to convert it into 12 or 24 English words that are easy for you to digest, understand, and read. So it's your responsibility to take the information the wallet gives you and to secure it by writing it down on a piece of paper or stamping it into a steel plate, which is, I've got articles on doing that too. I love that article, by the way. (laughs) The the nice thing about the steel plates is that they're fireproof, they're floodproof, they're a lot more robust than just having these seed words on on a piece of paper. Um, The the thing you don't want to do is digitize these words. You do not want to take a screenshot of them with your phone. You do not want to save them in a text file on your computer because eventually somebody's going to have access to your phone or someone's going to have access to your computer. And if they get those words, that is the equivalent of an intruder sneaking into your house, cracking open your gun safe, and gaining access to your loaded weapons while you're still in bed and asleep. So it's that same level of, of preparation and planning. Um, so if, if you take the 24 words that your wallet software provides you and you stamp it into a steel plate and you secure that steel plate as if as though it were gold or jewelry or your, your weapons, then you've got a huge head start over people who are leaving their coins in third-party control. And so that's that's how you can protect yourself. You just got to back up that information. And then 
if your Bitcoin wallet, which is on your phone, let's say you go out to the shooting range and you accidentally blast your phone and it's destroyed, it's not the end of the world. You can you can get a new phone, you can download the Bitcoin wallet again, and you can use those 24 words that you backed up on the steel plate to regenerate your Bitcoin wallet. And then your funds are still going to be there for you. So you, you just you need to secure the information that the wallet gives you in a way that isn't accessible digitally and in a way that's going to be robust enough to survive environmental hazards and in a way that it's not going to be accessible if someone's in your home. And your Bitcoin is going to be just as secure as that steel plate that you stamp the words into. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to me how like controlling your own funds is such like a giant leap for people. When we do the same fucking thing with social security cards, uh, passports, birth certificates, and stuff like that, like I mean, I mean, you can't like your social security card. You can get a new one, but it's pretty much near like it's a pretty Herculean effort to get a new social security card from my understanding. And like, it's, it's basically treating it differently. Like this, this is, this is for my identity because I'm only who I am because the government gives me the sheet of paper saying I am who this person is. And this is where I keep my financial, uh, my, my financial um, well-being stored and treat it with the same, same amount of respect and responsibility. Yeah. Right. And you know, that's, that's, that's a you bring up a good point about we're not familiar with that level of radical responsibility when it comes to finances. There's no like 1-800 helpline in Bitcoin. There's no card lock feature in Bitcoin. Like when I say radical responsibility, I mean like wild west, it's you against the world. You, your Bitcoin's only as secure as you want to make it. Just like you're only as protected as you want to make yourself. Yeah. And whether that means you have one gun in your home or you have 115,000 pounds of ammo on the second floor, I feel that's like your that. choice. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's, your, that's your right to exercise the tools to protect yourself. Yeah, absolutely, man. All right, cool. So I've, I've got one more question for you, and this this is more of like a speculative question. Um, what in, in the near in the near term future, where where do you see global currencies moving? Like uh, you see a lot of headlines, particularly about governments trying to digitize, uh, creating a, a digital currency, like China being one of them, um, and. Where, where, how do you see this playing out? Like we we've already seen like a preview into a government starting a cryptocurrency. What was it, Venezuela with the Petro coin or something like that, and that just tanked. Um, so what do you what do you think on the horizon in the next three three to five years? Not good things. Uh, unfortunately, I think I think we're going to have a lot of. We're gonna. There's gonna be a lot of opportunity to exercise your liberty as a free individual, and what I mean by that is like, it, it's it's about control. If if you if you haven't learned that from watching 2020 happen and 
spill over into 2021. It's all about control. I foresee cash being eradicated. They've been trying to do it for years. Uh, you know, once cash gets eradicated, the central bank digital currencies are going to take its place. And central bank digital currencies are great for banks and governments because they can literally turn your livelihood off at the flip of a switch. And um, you can observe how awful that is for humanity in an example of the Chinese credit score system or social credit system, where if you show any sort of disobedience to the government, then they can literally stop you from being able to buy food, pay your rent, get on public transportation. Like they can literally control you. And I, th I think that is the direction that we're headed um, you know, and, and I think these like universal basic income payments are part of that. And, you know, to go out a little bit on a limb here. Um, you know, I, I think you're, you're going to see things where once cash is eradicated and everyone is corralled into these central bank digital currencies, then you're going to continue to see sectors of the economy systematically shut down and blocked off from participation from non-essential workers. And the people who are left on the sidelines are going to be left with no choice but to feed off of the universal basic income payments that are coming, which once cash is eradicated and they're not sending out checks anymore, this will be in the form of the government just sending digital payments directly into your account. And then they can start implementing all sorts of interesting control mechanisms on that. Like, well, now we've taken away the option for you to economically generate income on your own and you are dependent on our income. So now you have to get these three booster shots in order to get your next round of payments from us or whatever sort of control mechanisms they want to implement. But that, that's where I see this happening, or this, that, that's the direction I see this heading. Um, Bitcoin, it, in, its, in its true form, not the Venmo or PayPal form, but Bitcoin in its true form is, is, the, antith is the opposite of that. Um, it is the inability for a central authority to exert any sort of control over anyone. And I, I think that's going to be a very powerful tool to have in your back pocket in the near future. Yeah, I, 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 I one of my pet peeves about I, I opted out of politics a long time ago. Like I actively avoid the news. It's ne nearly impossible to do these days. Um, but like one of the things that frustrates me the most is people conflating rights with free shit. <laughs> like um and even even if the even if you do make something a right and it's free shit that the government gives you it's not free it comes that there's always trade-offs there there are no solutions there are only trade-offs and right. 
dependency on the government means that you have you, you are more susceptible to being coerced to what the government wants it to do and like this isn't tin foil hat thinking like this like you could see it in other countries today you could go back on the extreme end when you look at like the fascist regimes um 80 years ago 90 years ago like there's precedent for this like this just just like fiat currency where eventually uh, debases to zero governments have this tendency to debase to tyranny and yeah this is just one additional tool in the toolbox to uh kind of be be that uh be be the change you want to see in the world (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, you're, you're gonna you're gonna protect yourself with arms you know whether you're buying mass manufactured arms or you're 3d printing them at home you're going to physically protect yourself with that, but that's only going to get you so far. You also need to physically, or you, you also need to protect your finances and you can't do that when they have the upper hand in the situation and they can debase your currency through inflation or they can force you to interact with all these intermediaries that that are permissioned you know if if you can take measures to protect your finances and your livelihood in a way that doesn't depend on anyone else then you're you're going to be much better prepared for anything totally agree all right man well uh that's everything i had thanks thanks so much for coming on i always learn a ton from you dude and uh what was it? I'm going to include links to your website, your Twitter, follow Economist Alch- Econo Alchemist on Twitter. Um, you can click on one of the links that I'm going to be popping up here on the screen to find it on the internet. But anything else you want uh, where other people can find you aside from your website and Twitter? Yeah, I use the Econo Alchemist handle everywhere. So that's, you know, Twitter, Telegram, um, my website. I'm an open book. Dude, feel free to hit me up via email or telegram or direct message, whatever. Like, um, I love chatting with people and sharing the information that I've learned. I'm not an expert, but I am an open book and I will do my best to answer the questions that I can. And if I don't know the answer, I'll do my best to try and point you in the right direction and, you know, take self custody seriously. Don't use KYC for purchasing Bitcoin and get out there and have a little bit of fun. Don't be scared of trying this stuff. You're you're a wise man and a revolutionary, my friend. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot, man. Cool. Good talking. You too.